The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. So Philippians chapter 1, I think last week when we began, we started up around verse 25, and if I recall correctly, one of the first things I said was we should finish chapter 1 tonight, and that was last week, and we didn't. Uh, So we're going to be picking up here in just a moment, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of verse 29. uh, As I was continuing to look back over and restudy and examine chapter 2, I estimate that chapter 2 will move a little bit more quickly. However, in my opinion, chapter 2 may be the greatest chapter out of these uh, verses that we study in this book. Uh, Of course, chapter 4 is very familiar, uh, what Paul says there concerning counting everything but loss, concerning pointing his self toward God, pressing toward the mark, that sort of thing is very familiar. But chapter 2 is just as familiar, and we'll say more about that when we get there. But backing up, just in the reading at least, chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 26, here Paul writes by inspiration that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me, by my coming to you. And as I mentioned then, Paul's not being selfish. He just understands that he is a representative. He's an ambassador for God. So if he comes in the name of God and does what God would have him to do, which we can assume Paul at least was trying to do, he was zealous in doing that, then that will be a benefit to them. Verse 27, he said, Only let your conversation be as it becometh of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come... And see ye, or else be absent, that I may hear of the affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this, is, this verse right here, at least verse 27, is why when I break the book down, and I've said this many times, I tend to swap it up as I'm going through. I may read it one day and say, well, I'll cut it off here and pick it up there. Uh, but basically when I break the book down, most times... If you want to put these in larger sections, you can look at chapter 1, verse 27, and really the context goes through chapter 2 and verse 11. So chapter 1 and verse 27 through chapter 2 and verse 11, uh, Paul really starts talking about unity, not only unity among the brethren, which we'll discuss as we get to that, but more importantly, unity with Christ, Uh, the unity that Christ had with God, the Father, as well as the unity that we can have with both of them, because of Christ. And that's what really he starts talking about when he talks about being, number one, verse 27, of one mind. Number two, that they strive together and they do that for the faith. Now, verse 28 is kind of where we were starting to leave off last week. And in nothing be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but you of salvation and that of God. And we express there as we looked at that, I hope we did at least, that Paul reminds them that they don't need to be terrified and or afraid of the things that they face. And again, in first century times, we obviously know they were facing a lot of difficulties and a lot of which for them, can't tell you for sure if that'll occur in our lives or not, it seems like it's closer, uh, was physical. Uh, They were being not only uh, outcasted by their separation from the world, which they were told to do. Christians should be separate from the world. But on top of that, they were being abused for that. They were being persecuted for that. And in the immediate context of what's happening to Paul, remember back over in chapter 1, 
uh, right around verse number 14, 15, and on through 19, Paul's talking about the difficulty that even he is facing because there are so many among him that are preaching the gospel. He admitted they were doing that, but were doing it out of strife and out of vainglory. And we're doing it in such a way, verse 13 of chapter 1 seems evident, that they were trying to do damage not just to the gospel, they were trying to protect it to an extent, but they were trying to hurt Paul. And they were basically standing back and saying, well, look at there, Paul's in prison, uh, Paul's not accomplishing what he thought he would, and so we can now do a greater work. And Paul wants to express and remind them, chapter 1, 13 and forward, as he does us now, looking at that it's not about our own vain glory, which is a word will be found in chapter 2. It's not about uh, being, uh, having a lack of humility, which chapter 2 we'll get into. It's really about sharing together, striving together. Those are words he just used there for the sake of the gospel itself and not allowing those things to make us to be terrified or afraid of our adversaries. Now, verse 29 for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now that word believe, and we've talked about similar words many, many times. It is a word that, that means to believe, to trust, to rely on, to lean on, to have faith. All the same type of ideas. As a matter of fact, the word believe here is, is exactly the word faith that we find in so many other contexts where Paul makes really extensive, in-depth points by inspiration about how much reliance, how much trust, how much faith, if you will, that we ought to have in God and how much we ought to rely on Him. But the word that Paul uses here in verse 27, I just kept reeling over this one today, especially as I was looking back at it. The word that Paul uses here in verse 27, to believe, or I'm sorry, verse 29, uh, that word carries the idea of having a faith, having a trust, having a reliance that is based on firsthand evidence. Now think about that. We say so many times, and we try to remind ourselves, especially as we're, we're coming up, and we say this a lot about teenagers and, and you know, uh, young adults and stuff, and we say, well, they've got to be sure that at some point in life that they make their faith their faith, and that they can no longer rely on, well, my grandma said, my mama said, my daddy said, or here's what my parents always did, or here's what they believed, or they can no longer rely on that. And there is a time, and we see this happening, and sometimes it ends up uh, coming, at, coming out in a very sad occurrence. There's always a time in someone's life when they reach kind of that young adulthood uh, type of stage where sometimes you'll start seeing people falling away. And not to say exactly what that always is, but as you well know, many times that is because they've just simply gone through the motions. They've taken things on because their parents did or their grandparents did. It's more of a generational thing. And then at some point when they have to stop and make that decision for themselves, uh, they don't always see the truth in the way it ought to be seen. And that, that's uh, hindered, we know well, is, uh, also that's oftentimes hindered because there's so many outside so for, uh, forces. There's so many things in the world that are piling on, trying to convince them that God is not real, God is not what He said He was, and on and on, you know how all that runs. But the truth is, and Paul says it here, in essence, he says, For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, and literally he's saying to believe on Him for yourself, 
because you've seen it in someone else and you've taken that on for yourself. Now, uh, I, I was trying to think that through today and think about a way to kind of illustrate it even more to you. Let's imagine for a moment, and this wouldn't be no big whoop or anything, but imagine for a moment that I had a, a series of boards and I laid those boards out between these two pews and made a bridge. And I said, anybody in here that wants to come, I've just built a brand new bridge between these two pews. Anybody that's willing to get up on top of these cushions and walk across and walk across my bridge can have $100 at the other side. Now, there'll probably be several people like, I mean, what do I lose? If I fall, I fall, you know, 12 inches. It's not, not going to be a big deal. And they'll come on. But I promise you, the first person that walks across it's probably going to be watching those boards, watching those pews, watching everything around them, trying to balance, trying to be sure, trying to be certain that these things are going to hold. They're going to have a level of faith in those boards, a level of faith in whatever my design is to put those there. And as the first person goes across, or maybe the second or the third, each person behind them has a gift given to them automatically because they can see those who crossed. And maybe you get down three, four, five people behind, and you got somebody who's like, man, this is easy money. And they jump up, they just sprint across it. And they go across it because in their mind, they're thinking to themselves, well, look at all the success that's come ahead of me. Look at the way these people have crossed this, this bridge between the pews. Well, in a sense, we had that opportunity. But at the end of the day, the crossing of that bridge cannot remain based on just what the person before you or before, before them came about. You remember what's stated there in Hebrews chapter 11? We call it Faith's Hall of Fame. It goes down through all of those characters by name in the beginning. By the end of that, it just starts lumping groups of people together. It starts talking about people via characteristics and finally gets all the way down. I think the end of chapter 11 is actually what we call chapter 12 down through about verse 5. It comes down to chapter 12 and it starts talking about the great cloud of what? What's King James saying that? Witnesses. witnesses. What are those witnesses doing? In one sense, we picture them, we say, well, you know, the witnesses are there. It's, it's like a, a stadium. They're there and they're piled up in the stadium. They're looking down, they're cheering us on. I think there's, to some extent, there's that. But more than that is an opportunity to look up in those stands and say, wait a minute, my life is a mess right now and I'm struggling and I'm having a hard time, but I look up here and I can see Abraham. And I know what he dealt with. And I know the trials that he faced. And I know the problems that he had. I know the things that God asked of him, which to me, even going back reading them, you know, thousands of years removed, still seem impossible. But he's there, along with all those other characters listed, along with all those faces that, that we may see that don't even to us have names, and all the difficulty that they faced. And so they're not only in that sense cheering us on, but they're encouraging us. And so what is our faith built on? Initially, it may be the fact, well, if, if Abraham did it, if, you know, if all these other characters did that, if David accomplished what he did and Moses accomplished what he did and you go through the list, Joseph and all those, then I can too, yeah. But how do we do that in the end? You do it based on your faith that you've built and that you have now experienced. 
That's not to divide, again, necessarily completely the fact that, yes, we see people who are faithful and they and their faith allow us to grow our faith. But that's just to say that once we get to a place, and it's a place Paul is calling for the brethren in Philippi to get, is that their faith has to be their faith. And again, to reread that verse again, for unto you is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, and here's where I know that's the case, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now imagine that. Let's put the scenario back out. I'm, I'm making up this illustration as I go, so if at the end I say that don't make no sense, you can say that don't make no sense, he blew it. But imagine that same bridge built across these pews, and one person crosses, and the next person crosses, and the third person crosses, and you start hearing cracks. And the fourth person crosses and you start seeing some of the board itself beginning to bend and bow. And you start seeing some splintering on the bottom. What's going to happen? Person number five may say, you know what? Uh, that bridge has had better days. It's seen better times. I, I don't know that I can cross that because what if I did fall? I can understand that. But at the same time, the sixth person may say, now wait a minute, I've examined this, and if I can just get a half a good step in the middle of that bridge, I can just about span myself to the other side anyway. I can still make it. There may be difficulties. There may be tough times. There may be the, the potential for tragedy and for failure. But there's also the possibility of reaching the other side. At some point in our lives, and I have to... I do better saying this in the mirror. At least I need, I need to say this in the mirror more often than I do. At some point in our lives, again, our faith has to be our faith, up until the point and to the extent that we are willing to voluntarily suffer for Christ. Suffer as Christ did. To say that a little bit differently, at least for myself, we're either walking along beside Christ, or we're walking against Him. If I'm not willing and able to suffer for Him, and specifically for His sake in this case, which we'll talk about more in a moment, but if I'm not willing to do that, then the truth is I'm not actually possessive of my own personal faith. I don't actually have the belief in Him that is firsthand based on my experiences at all. And there are other ways that we'll mention that here in just a moment. But he says right here, but unto you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. One question that we already know the answer to, did Paul suffer? We can do this right here for sure. Paul had suffered. And as a matter of fact, as we recall several thousand times over, we may have said already, Paul was actually in prison and suffering as he writes the letter. And so what Paul has already said about joy, what he's already said about rejoicing, what he's already said, again, chapter 1 and verse 13, about the things that are occurring in his life being for the furtherance. He's mentioned that twice, as a matter of fact, being for the furtherance of the gospel itself. Paul knew what suffering was. 
Paul's divine commentary on suffering that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 goes through a litany of things that Paul endured from shipwrecks to beatings to up into stonings and potentially impossibly being left for dead and all that he went through and all that he endured, Paul was suffering for Christ's sake. What is he going to say later on in this letter? Paul says, I therefore bear what? I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. So, Paul, I don't know exactly what all that entailed, I think, to an extent, or I know to an extent, he's talking about the spiritual marks. Paul looked like Christ because he acted like Christ, because he lived like Christ. Not completely and perfectly, but all to the best of his attempts. But I think there's also some truth to the fact, evident by what he said about himself, Paul had some marks on him physically probably that looked much like Christ. And as we've stated a couple of different times back over in chapter 1, several uh, commented on the same. I know Andy did. Andy's uh, a little under the weather tonight. But as we said many times, when it comes down to it and, and the potential for suffering comes up, if we are able to suffer, that's an advancement to us and to the cause of the gospel. If not, then, then our faith, uh, as, as I've said and Shane has said many times too, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And so that within itself, the suffering, he says it is also for his sake. And you note Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, Romans 8 and verse 17 for that a little bit more. Now verse 30 ties in closer to that. He said, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here, to be in me. Now the word conflict here is hard to determine. The word that he uses here could go one of two ways. It carries with it much of the way of, of the idea of struggling, having to endure. Does anyone have a word different than that? I know some of you have the NASB and some other translations. I'm looking at verse 30. Having the same conflict, other words that are there. The same word. I didn't, I didn't necessarily check that. Uh, I think other translations could be having the same struggles. The same hardships may be a word that could be used there pretty accurately. Now whether Paul's reflecting on this from one or two perspectives, we cannot tell either would work. One, the word here used for conflict in its original language was oftentimes used as a, a soldier's type of term, a military type of term. Now, did Paul ever compare himself to a soldier? Sure. Yes, he did. As a matter of fact, he tells us in, in uh, what is it? I just saw it. I saw it right there in front of my eyes. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 and forward. I think it's in verse 3 or 4, but you'd have to check me on that. 2 Timothy 2, 3 or 4. He says we are to endure hardness as a good soldier. Guess what that word endure is? Very much the same as this. It's not the brother of this word, not the sister, but it's the first cousin. Paul said there to endure hardness as a good soldier. You look on down the page there, Paul gets to a point, 2 Timothy as well, but not in chapter 2, but in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, particularly verse 7. Is it verse 7? Particularly verse yeah, 7. Paul says, I have what? Fought the good fight. I have finished my course, and I've kept the faith. What's Paul saying? He said, I've lived my life like a soldier. 
And I've fought hard for it. And I've dealt with things for that. And I have struggled for that. And I have endured for that. I've been in conflict for that. That's what being a soldier is all about. And he was willing to fight. But he says in the next phrase there, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. What's that? An athletic term. That's what this is. It's either a military term and or an athletic term. What does an athlete have to do to be good? To be skilled. Well, first of all, if he's an athlete as far as someone who races, or I guess any, any, uh, any uh, sport, you know, ball, whatever, at the end of it, if his goal is winning, he's got to finish to win that. Um, unrelated to most people, but I, I happened to see this the other day. Some of you saw it. If you're an Alabama fan, you saw it anyway. Mac Jones was being interviewed for the Pro Day thing, and uh, Landon Dickerson, I don't know how big the boy was, Alabama center, uh, 350-some-odd pounds, six-foot-five. Normally would be immobile at that size. Um, he did cartwheels all the way across the field behind Mac Jones during the interview after tearing his ACL not even 12 weeks ago. How did that happen? Because he has worked. Somewhere, somehow, that man uh, himself has worked. Paul says, and having the same conflict, I'm willing to struggle. I'm willing to put these things together. Matter of fact, I've got an error drawn from the word conflict, verse 30, back up to the phrase, verse 27, the latter there, striving together. They struggled together. They had the same conflict, which is saw in me, and now you're here to be in me. So Paul says, I've been in conflict, and I'm still in conflict. Yes, sir. Still praying. So there's two different times. They saw it, and now they're hearing from him ten years later. Exactly right. Paul is a tremendous encouragement to them and to us, obviously, there. So that's basically chapter one in a nutshell. But as I said a few minutes ago, last week, week before, chapter one, verse 27, basically through chapter two and verse 11, is one thought. There are several breaks, and we'll try to mention those as we get to them, but it's basically one thought. So if you go on into chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 1, I've got the word chapter marked through just in my print right here and taken away from anybody, but God didn't put that there, so I'm, I'm okay with it. But I've marked the word chapter out in my copy right here. Because the thought carries on, he says chapter 2 and verse 1, if there be, what's the next word? Therefore, and we go through the same stuff. We see a therefore, you got to see what it's there for. So obviously it points back to something. He said, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, verse 2, fulfill ye my joy. So Paul starts out here, and he's going to do it several times by making several, I think about four, there may be more if you tie some things in the next verses, which we will ultimately. 
making several conditional-sounding type of statements. Why would I say it's conditional? Because he uses what we see on the page. He uses the word if. Now, you may walk up to somebody after services and say, if I get a chance tomorrow, I'm going to do such and so. What does that mean? Maybe, maybe not. It means their, their ultimate choice may be to do this, but if something doesn't work out, they've got an, an, another option, a plan B. And maybe they've even considered in their mind, and I've learned in my life this is just the way I have to live every day. You've got to consider in your mind that plan A probably may not work out, and so plan B may as well be just as good. I used to plan for plan A was the ultimate. I could reach my goal. Now I just get up and go, what's today? Matter of fact, every day is Saturday for me, but Sunday. Just roll with it. I won't even name the stuff that uh, happened today. I could talk. Walk around on a peg leg for one that's frustrating as I'll get out. But whatever. If. But the word that's used here can go one of two ways. I think it's going to go the latter. The word if can either go if as in what is called a first-class conditional statement or the word if can be translated since. Now, I actually choose to understand this, all these phrases as since because if Paul's writing through inspiration and he's trying to encourage the brethren, he's not really asking them questions. I mean, if you leave it as if, as we understand if most of the time, he's saying, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ. And somebody say, well, for me, there's no consolation in Christ. If there be uh, any comfort in love. And somebody might say, well, I mean, maybe there won't be comfort in love. Then you go on through the list. But Paul knows this to be fact. And he knows ultimately that the brethren need to consider these things as fact. So what in essence Paul is saying is, since there's consolation in Christ, since there's comfort in love, since there's fellowship in the Spirit, and since you can have the bowels of mercy, you feel my joy. He knows they can accomplish this. And again, that is in spite of the fact he is in prison. It's in spite of the fact that he understands that being in prison, verse 27, he's striving together with them. In spite of the fact he knows that they and he are suffering for Christ's sake. And in spite of the fact that he says they're in the same conflict. So he says, if, or maybe better translated, since. Now, each of these statements within themselves can stand alone to one extent, as well as each of these if statements, first class conditional type statements here in verse 1, can be seen together as a unit because in one sense they build upon and balance one another. So look at the first one there. If there be therefore any consolation. What is a consolation? Anybody have a different term than that? Somebody's got a digital Bible can help me out. Another term for consolation. 
It's basically very similar to the next idea, and it's the idea of something being comfortable or something being made to be comfortable. Back on the old-time old game shows, I don't know if the new-time game shows are really competitive or if they're really even real. I mean, you watch TV for three minutes and a half any day you want, you'll see things that you can walk away and say, I don't know if that really happened or not. Old-time type game shows, we'll take Price is Right or something, or I don't know the Price is Right did it, but there was oftentimes on those shows offered what was called a consolation prize. Sometimes they did it on the television. Sometimes you could just read it in the fine print if you could see the things flashing up on the screen. Participants received a consolation prize. What did that mean? They didn't win it. But they got something out of it. Now ultimately we know we want to win it in our fight and our striving toward our goal of heaven and toward a home in heaven with Christ. We know that. But at the same time, let's back up. Paul's not in heaven writing this. Paul is on earth. Paul's in prison. Paul's not getting what we would consider physically the best deal around at the moment. But he also knows there's still comfort in Christ. There's still some consolation. There's still, here's the real word, there's still Christ with his arm thrown around our shoulder, pulling us in and saying, you know what? You're going to make it. You're going to be all right. Shane joked uh, Sunday about not being a hugger. You know, I'm not much of a hugger either, but does it ever, does it ever help you? It may not be a big, big bear hug, but does it ever help you when you're feeling discouraged if someone just walks up and just kind of pats you on the shoulder? Just that little bit of, you know, little bit of a touch. It can. It can be an encouragement. Yes, sir. Very close word to the words that are used to talk about the comforter, which Jesus referred to in John chapter 16, well, really 14 through 16, as he started to express about the comforter, the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, the one who pulls us in and holds us tight. So since there's consolation in Christ, and if any comfort of love. Is there any comfort that comes from knowing that on the one hand, we'll look at the physical, that we have someone who loves us? So a lot of times there is. Same situations. We, we struggle. We get discouraged. We, we feel downtrodden or beat down. And then someone steps in and just said, look, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you and I love you. It can change a whole perspective. It can turn a day uh, back up on its right side. There is comfort in love. If any, or since there is possible, any fellowship of the Spirit. Now that word fellowship is a Greek word, cornea, or cornea, which carries with the idea of someone who not only has come up, remember these are building, someone came up, picture this, someone has come up, struggling, discouraged, downtrodden, disgruntled, someone comes up and puts their arm around you. They lean in and they let you know they love you. And then as they reach around kind of to grab you with a with kind of that finish out hug, they pull you in and say, man, we're going through this together. 
You're not in this alone. Paul describes such to these brethren. And then he says, and this one, King James speak, is a little bit uh, stranger, but for them was uh, uh, obviously appropriate. He said, and if any, the bowels of mercy, that is the seat of feelings, emotions. Again, kind of points back to love, kind of points back to fellowship, kind of points back to the consolation that comes. So Paul lets the brethren know, chapter 2, verse 1, that no matter the situation they're in, no matter the struggle they're enduring, no matter the suffering they're a part of, it's still the case that God holds them tight, He loves them much, and that He Himself will have mercy on their souls. So there's some unity about to start. Now, I'll give you a little quick, quick outline that's not related to anything else I think I shared with you on the paper back uh, nine weeks ago, anything like that. Chapter 2, this is just for the first few verses, speaking about the unification that can exist between the brethren because it exists between us and Christ. Verse 1 talks about them being or having, I should say, the same passion. And that's really what all those phrases were about. The word love was mentioned one time, but the consolation and the fellowship that come on each side of it, along with the mercies that come just below it, all point back to the fact that the brethren there could have the same passion. Verse 2, which we're going to get to here in a moment, talks about them not just having the same passion, but having the same purpose. Because as they live their lives, even though they struggle, even though they suffer, even though they strive together and go through difficulties together, they ought to have in the end of the day, as we might say it, the same purpose. And you'll see it in the word like-minded in verse 2. Then verses, verse 3, kind of standing alone, you could add to that 3a, as I would say it. They not only have the same passion, they have the same purpose, but they ought to have the same perspective. Because ultimately what he's really going to develop, verse 3 and forward down through verse 11, is he's going to start showing them what the mind of Christ was like and how that they could share that mind, not only one between another, but one toward God. And that their perspective on life has to be different. What is life about many times, especially if you get outside these four walls? It's about self. It's about what can I accomplish? What can I do? How can I live? What can I gain? What treasures can I pile up on this earth? It's about, it's about me. It's simply about self. Who was selfless? Christ, period. We try to mimic and mirror those, those characteristics and should, but ultimately the only selfless person that has existed comes down to Christ. Sinless and selfless. That's what he was. And he wants them to have that same perspective. That's basically 3A. Now from 3A and 4, so verse uh, 3, uh, I'm sorry, 3B, the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4, they also learn to have the same position. That's very similar to the perspective because once they get their mind right, the perspective right, that I'm no better than he is and he's no better than I, their position levels out. You've heard the old phrase used many times, there's level ground at the foot of the what? The foot of the cross. 
And it doesn't always feel that way, but it ought to be that way. That ought to be the place we find ourselves. And, you know, we, we live in a community that, to an extent, we might say is diverse, and it is. There's separations. There's, you know, different colors of skins. There's different uh, socioeconomic levels. There's different education levels. There's different all this. But I think Mumford, comparatively to much of the world, especially larger cities, is probably less diverse than they are. You know, we're all, at the end of the day, we're all just country folks. You know, maybe there's level ground at the, at the foot of the barn, too. I don't know. At the end of the day, we're, we're similar in that way. In some places, that's not exactly the way it is. How was it, and we mentioned this back in the book of Colossians, I think we may have mentioned in, the, in uh, several books before, how were situations that existed between Jew and Gentile? pretty much in conflict, pretty much separated, pretty much, you know, argumentative all the time, pretty much didn't want to have anything to do with one another. There's some of that type of thing that exists today. What fixed, well, I, yeah, what fixed that? It didn't fix it in everybody's heart, but what fixed that? The church did. As a matter of fact, the it's, it's called in Scripture several different times. The Ephesian letter expounded on it uh, in, a great, in a great way. It actually called the establishment, the uh, building of the church. The, as a matter of fact, the church before that, in the mind of God, was called the mystery of the gospel. What's so mysterious about it? No, no person... You can take Jew and Gentile, for example, ever thought that there could be a day and a time when every man and woman could be equal one to another and could function that way and could worship that way and could fellowship that way and coordinate that way. But Paul gets them to an understanding of the, of the same passion to fulfill the same purpose, to come along about the same perspective, ultimately to share together the same position. That's verse 1, 2, and then 3, and then 3, 4. Same ideas. Right. The disunity was behind their problems. And that'll happen. Uh, I, I look back at the terms. Well, we just talked about them several different ways. But striving together, verse 27. Um, suffering basically together. Conflicting together. What have we known to happen on an actual battlefield? Or you could say a ball field. What happens sometimes? Well, on a battlefield, men from all over the... In the past, just take us, we're all over the United States, come together from every community, every, you know, everything there is. And they come together, and when the conflict hits, guess what? Everybody not only fights for themselves, they fight for one another. You know, people receive medals sometimes for their valor and for their courage, and, and sometimes that comes down to the fact they say, well, I was scared to death, I didn't want to leave him laying there. Or I didn't, I didn't want him to be harmed. When self comes out of it, Sometimes these selfless acts come into it. And so verse 2, he says, Since it's possible that you can have consolation in Christ, and since it's possible that you can 
have comfort and love, since it's possible that you can have fellowship, since it's possible you can find these mercies. He says, fulfill you my joy. How is that possible? Here's the formula. That ye be like-minded, having also the same uh, love, being of one accord and one mind. How is that accomplished? He starts naming these ways out. And he'll go through, and I've numbered it four, I've numbered it as many as six, and we'll, we'll get to them in a minute or another time because we're almost done. But when it comes down to it right here, we would call it the brass tacks. When it comes down to it, they've got to get together in their minds, in their hearts, and in their actions in order to fulfill his joy because he's looking at them wanting them to do what? To fulfill the joy of God. Some translations actually have this. He says, fulfill ye my cup of joy. And what he's talking about there is bringing his joy, which he has joy. Because his joy is not dependent on happenstance, it's dependent on Jesus. But he's saying, bring my joy up to the brim so it starts to overflow. Paul said, fill my heart with joy. What would do that for him? Knowing that or having the knowledge that they are like-minded, that they're of the same love, that they are of one accord, and that they are of one mind. And I'll give you a term here as we close that uh, I don't really understand as much. In the Greek language, this is what's called the present subjunctive. You say, what in the, well, the present? What? The present subjunctive, which means keep doing this, get it happening, get it started, and make sure that this occurs back and forth between you all every morning. Every day. And that's what he desires for them. That will fulfill his joy. I appreciate your attention. And we'll come back to this on next week.